Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com prenatal. Get everything for your next roofing project at Menards. Your roof is the first line of defense against the elements. Owens Corning Shingles are designed to offer long-lasting performance while providing ultimate protection. They have a limited lifetime warranty and up to a 130-mile-per-hour wind warranty. Choose from over 40 options designed to protect your home for years to come. Save big on Shingles at Menards. And don't forget to check out our weekly ad on Menards.com. Save big money at From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. There aren't a lot of dark, evil characters in the book world, but our guest today, Reeves Weidemann, an investigative reporter at New York Magazine, certainly found one. Reeves is the author of the recently published viral sensation, The Spine Collector, about a mysterious figure who has tricked agents, famous authors, book scouts, and other unwitting participants into sending them their precious book manuscripts. Reeves tells us about the exhaustive, obsessive research he did and the frustration at getting very close to finding out the identity of this book thief. We're also going to talk about his book, Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. My first question to dive in is whether you consider yourself an obsessive person. (laughs) Well, that may be our our theme for the day. I, I think I wouldn't have identified quite in that way, maybe two years ago. And I, and I think working on a book in the middle of a pandemic and, and doing so at an extremely quick pace, and then also working on, on this story that came out most recently, I, I think I have recognized in myself a, a certain level of obsessiveness when I have a good story that I'm chasing. And it, it's something that when I think about writing that book, which which I started writing before the pandemic and and kind of finished in the summer of 2020, it became the thing that that got me through you know those darker days was just working these really long hours on on this book project. And so I think I think in some ways I, I do have to admit that I I have a little bit of obsessiveness in me. Well, it probably serves you very well. Before we dive in. Um, to the book and the process of writing that through a pandemic. I want to really talk about the spine collector and who you think this spine collector is. But first off, how long this saga has gone on for you and when you first heard about this this thief? Sure. So I first heard about this earlier this year, around February of, of 2021. And and the way I heard about it was hearing from a friend who had talked to a friend who was a fairly big name author in, in the U.S. Who, who writes fiction. And this person had had been dealing with this very strange situation where 
someone was impersonating their editor, their agent, their editor in the UK, their editor in the UK's assistant, all via email, creating these fake email accounts, trying to get an early copy of their book. And in addition to that, it, this had become such a problem for, for not only that author and, and so many others that, that this author's publisher was going to potentially rope them into a sting operation to try to solve this. So I was immediately interested, and, and it was only at that point that I had gone back and, and read a few pieces that had, had come out about this and and very quickly discovered that it had been going on for years and, and people had ideas about what was going on, but no one could really figure out why or, or who was doing this. Well, let's talk about the spine collector specifically, because you describe him, her, them as a clever thief with aliases, targeting victims around the world and acting with no clear motive. So it's interesting to have these crimes going on, some kind of cyber crimes, impersonation, but the stakes don't seem incredibly high. And what do you think the motive is behind this person? That's been the, the trickiest thing to figure out. So uh, when this first started happening, as, as best we can tell, it was, it was the fall of 2016. So five years ago, actually, in September of, of 2016. And at that point, it was this, this scheme was, was very much centered in the foreign rights publishing world. So you know, this is a world where <clears throat> novels get sold, books get sold, and then the rights to them get get sold to publishers all over the world. And, and for big books, this can be very heated. In other cases, for smaller books, you know, agents are, are, are desperately trying to, to get sort of whatever deals they can. And, and what was confusing about the situation for people, especially early on, was this person was trying to steal the early manuscripts of, of books like the Elizabeth Salander series. But they were also trying to steal you know, novels from relatively, you know, unknown or, or not huge writers, books that don't frankly have, have that much commercial value in, in the foreign rights world. And yet those were the people who were being targeted. It was foreign rights managers at European publishers and, and literary scouts whose job is to find these, these books. So instantly the sort of, the feeling was that it it had to be someone in that world. And it, it had to be someone in that world, people felt, for a couple reasons. One, as you alluded to, the stakes were just low. These are not things where if you, if you get an early look at some of these books, you can go sell it somewhere or, or, or even to put it online and as a sort of piracy initiative we haven't found any cases of. There didn't seem to be any huge value. And the only group that that getting something like this would have some value to is the world of of literary scouts and and scouts we can talk more about them but their job essentially is to get early access to unpublished manuscripts in order to advise their clients who are typically foreign publishers or people in hollywood whether or not to buy the rights and so the assumption was whether there was some scout out there who just wasn't very good at their job and was finding this to be an easier way of, of trying to get books, or they were just trying to get a sort of extra edge on getting books that they couldn't get otherwise, that was kind of the earliest suspicion that people had. 
can you explain how literary scouts do their business? And sure. you mentioned a little bit, but also why in the time of the rise of the streaming services, how this has become a really important job and why getting things even just a couple of days early can be really important. So, you know, the scouting world is a small one. I, I mean, the, the estimates are, you know, there are dozens of people who, who do this, this kind of work, probably not more than a hundred and that's, that's around the world. And, and the, the way they generally do their job is, is, is it's a business of relationships as much of, of book publishing is as much of Hollywood is. And scouts job is to have good relationships with agents and editors and other people in, in the publishing world so that when there's a book that that they want to get that they think is worth their clients considering that they can go and ask for it and so it's a lot you know it's a very social job it's a job where you're building friendships in order to be able to call in a favor one day when when you need it and and that is the essence of the job it's to get books early and then to tell your clients you need to go get this book cuz it's going to be big or I'll, in some cases maybe pass on this one. And, and that has, as you mentioned, you know, when it, when it was sort of the province of, of largely working with foreign rights publishers, it was, you know, it was a steady business, but it, it wasn't the kind of money that you see in somewhere like Hollywood. And going all the way back to the nineties, there have been book scouts who have, have gone out and looked for books for, for people in Hollywood. There's a famous story about Maria Campbell, who's one of the, the biggest scouts in the business getting Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park to Steven Spielberg and and the rest is history. And so going all the way back to that point, there has always been this kind of pipeline that scouts played a crucial role in, in terms of, of getting the right books to the right people in Hollywood to then make movies out of them. The, the streaming wars have sent that into overdrive. In the last five or six years, roughly speaking, the number of scouts who have uh, into that business has has grown hugely and and scouts specifically just going to find books for Hollywood because just now more than ever the the streaming services in particular they obviously have this there's this voracious competition for things to adapt and and with these streaming services the one thing that is is different than it's it's always been is because they're subscription based you're really dependent on finding these built-in audiences that are going to keep coming back, finding these franchises. I mean, in some ways, this is the way all of Hollywood is going, but but it's become all the more important for the streaming companies to find these books that are going to guarantee to bring in an audience that, that, that are already fans of, of the books. I'm thinking of one great example of someone being impersonated, but their assistant working out that it likely was someone else. Can you share that example? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is where some of the funny things about this scam is is the person was was pretty good at at mimicking the the voice of someone in publishing, which is is one of the reasons people think it's it's that it, it must be someone in in publishing doing this. And there was a very funny example of you know, people would see slight differences. Sometimes when the person tried to write in a different language, the language wasn't very good. And other times they were just kind of stilted or asking for something in a strange way. And and these would often be the ways in which people would realize, oh, I'm I'm being duped here. 
And, and the, the funniest example of that was, was an assistant to an agent at, at WME. Their, their boss, the agent, was being impersonated and the assistant realized it because the impersonator was saying things like please and thank you. And, and, and their boss didn't quite have that level of politeness to their communication. So, so that's, that's the way that got uncovered. I love the little nuances, which I think is why you're such a great reporter, is is that there's these moments of humor throughout or Mm. examples of something that we can all imagine happening that just thread us through your work so well. Um, I want to talk about how COVID disrupted this impersonator's habits or kind of exacerbated their, I guess, risk-taking. Can you explain a little bit about how things shifted? Yeah, you know, like like everyone, whoever was doing this before the pandemic was clearly spending a lot of time on their computer, but, but as the pandemic hit, they were spending all of their time on the computer like the rest of us. And, and there were ways in which, you know, they took advantage of that. Suddenly they were emailing people between people within the same company, you know, with with people no longer in an office and able to just check with their colleague if if they were actually the person emailing them. You know, they would make sort of comments about the state of the world in their emails and and then frankly there was sort of a period about 6 months into the pandemic when when their emails turned angry. They were now making threats and and even at one point telling someone, you know, after a, an editor had sort of figured things out and confronted the person the thief wrote back and said, I hope you die of the coronavirus um, in Swedish. And, and so this was kind of a whole new sort of mode for this person. Traditionally, they had been very sort of matter of fact and straightforward. And, and even when they were confronted, they didn't get this level of anger. And in the spring, my fellow reporter Lila and I started getting emails from this person. They, they had somehow found out that we were working on this story, that we were investigating it and looking into it and decided to reach out to us. And they were pretending to be people. They were kind of trying to keep up the facade. Eventually, the sort of tone of it got to this point where they were really trying to ward us off of the investigation. They were trying to tell us it was a waste of time, that we weren't going to get anywhere with it. And it it felt to us at the time like a little bit of desperation on this person's part. And and why exactly they were feeling that way is, is a little hard to say. But clearly the emotions were coming out for this person um, in a way they hadn't before. Well, and excuse my language here, but it seems like the thief found out where she lived and Lila suggested meeting up in person. She lives in Cobble Hill. And then the person said, here I have it, quote, or fuck you, Hill, or why don't we meet you at Silly Cunt Square? Yep. When I came across that in the article, I was like, oh my gosh, things are really taking a turn. Did well, you imagine guys- getting that yeah. email and, and the Ugh. way we felt, yeah. Did you have to go to the police then when it started feeling threatening like that? We never did that. We did We did at a certain point take some precautions, consulting with the security team at, at our company just to make sure largely that we were sort of locked down in, in terms of our digital security. This person was trying to ask us for our home address and, and, and we, we, that was sort of a line we weren't going to cross. And, and it was hard to, hard to tell. And that's, that's, of course, in some ways, the scary thing about these kinds of, of scams is, is in most respects, this is a, a scam without victims. Nothing is happening. There are no consequences. This person in certain ways 
behaves a little bit cowardly and doesn't actively sort of confront people. And so here was a moment where, where they were doing that. And it, it was a little hard to calibrate exactly like what the, the risk level was. And, and, you know, Lila and I, we had arguments, not, not fights, but arguments about what exactly we should do. And should we be more aggressive? Should we really try to meet this person? Should we give them our address and see what happens? I was of the mind of, of let's, let's be cautious about this. Well, there was also a suspect, a man that people thought this could be all along. Mm -hmm. And I thought there was such an interesting moment in the story. You're speaking to a lot of sources who have been victims of this. And one person said, do we think it's this particular person just because he's weird? Mm -hmm. Suspicion can get wielded in all different places. Yeah, that was partly how... I got sucked into reporting this is is early on, I had been told by people I knew in publishing that they had a suspect in mind. And we were told there were certain reasons to suspect this person. A lot of them had to do with, you know, the fact that he was not on the social scene, that some people found his sort of demeanor a bit off-putting. He wasn't a big player in the industry. Um, He was a literary scout. And so there were a lot of sort of circumstantial suspicions about him. And and then what we were told is that there was this piece of evidence out there. And we were told that at one point he had slipped up and, and registered one of these fake domains to his own email address, to connecting it to himself. It was sort of another kind of rabbit hole where it was hard to tell exactly what was going on. And so there were you know, were plenty of people who who suspected this person, some of whom suspected him without even knowing about this potential piece of evidence. And so eventually we did have this confrontation. It was a, it was a bizarre interaction, you know, to, to be frank. You know, I was kind of relaying to a person, there's a lot of people who suspect you of this. And it was both kind of hard to tell. Some of it was strange. And it was, again, hard for me to tell, you know, whether something was suspicious or just a little little bit funky, you know? And, and, and that, I think, was something that a lot of people were, were grappling with uh, as they both suspected this person but weren't sure what it meant to, to, to be suspecting him. I'm wondering what your office looked like during this period of research <laughs> because I was laughing with my colleague Liam, Zodiac the movie comes to mind when yeah. reading this. And I thought, oh, you know, Reeves is Jake Gyllenhaal's character. And then I realized, no, 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 I'm actually feeling like the killer is with all the pieces of paper all uh, around the room and the strange formulas on the wall connecting yep. people. And in both this and with Billion Dollar Loser, when you get on a case, how do you have to visualize that in your room to kind of see how things link up? Paint us a picture. Yeah. Well, I, I did watch Zodiac a week or two ago after the story came out, and there were some unsettling similarities. The good news is that I can now, rather than having my my apartment fill up with boxes of, of stuff, I can keep it all on, on my laptop. So it, it at least keeps things a little more sane, but take a very sort of organized approach. And, and in some ways, you know, we played with kind of the, the, I don't know if the humor, the oddity of applying sort of the rigor of investigative journalism to a case like this, that is 
at the end of the day, mostly a bizarre case. This is not the most important investigation that, that I'll, I'll conduct in, in, in my life, certainly, or, or that I have. But it, it's the kind of thing where, you know, I, I had a multiple very, very sizable spreadsheets keeping track of people I needed to talk to and what they were telling me or what they could tell me. I eventually had this truly gigantic spreadsheet that listed every email that I had that this person had sent going back five years. There were, I think, by the end of it, more than 400 emails trying to track you know, the time of day they were sent, the, the books they were asking for, the languages they were writing in, certain sort of verbal tics to try to find some kind of clue. And, and ultimately, you know, we, we got to the end and it was like, well, I can make some guesses, but it's just guesses. Ultimately, all of this investigative effort that we put into it, you know, while I think it brought us a little bit closer to understanding what, what is happening or, or, or what isn't happening, it didn't ultimately lead us that much closer to identifying a suspect. There's something amazing though. And I think perhaps this is why it's captured people's attention and just emotion so much. It's almost the fact that you didn't find the person, but that you did apply that rigor to books. And I feel like book lovers feel that, and it made me realize that when I started kind of a new job in, in publishing, I wish I'd had your article a few years ago to understand the ins and outs of the scouting world. And I think we, we wanted it to be that uh, because the publishing world is weird and book publishing is itself is an industry that is sort of fitfully modernizing while also staying very much stuck in the past in in good ways and ways that that have have been a problem. I think that the quirks of of the business, and this is something Lila talked a lot about, she covers sort of the book industry a lot for New York Magazine, is it's almost uh, seems to be the case that that something like this could only happen in, in the publishing industry. You have people who are not the most tech savvy in the world and and you have people who are are trusting and everything is based on relationships and by the way like someone wants to read an early manuscript of one of my clients novels like thank goodness like i'm working so hard for this like everything was kind of primed in the industry for it to be taken advantage of in in this way and and i think that has in in many ways been what's been so damaging to people for people who've had to deal with this is is that sort of destruction of trust in an industry where you're not in it for the money, as as anyone can say, you're in it for the passion, you're in it for being part of this collective sort of group of people working toward the same goal, even as there are rivalries and 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 business concerns and all of that. And so damaging that I, I think has has been kind of painful for a lot of people. Definitely my experience of the publishing industry is that it's ultimately good and that the foundation of it is like you said people are in it because they love the written word and how reading something incredible starts to give you like that heartbeat like and also understanding that you know these big hits like a da vinci code or you know elizabeth sander series once we learn that they are the things that keep publishers afloat and that you need those huge commercial hits so a debut author can get their advance. 
yeah, you may not love the the bestseller, the guaranteed hit that you're working on as much as you do this this debut, but but one allows you to do the other. And and so this is kind of a threat to that whole ecosystem. Well, I think that's an amazing segue to pivot towards another industry with a billion dollar loser. It would be both real estate and technology and something you point out that Adam Newman was very clever in leaning in to how we work was embracing and pushing forward certain technologies because in the startup venture capital world, that's so appealing. But can you walk us through the process of deciding to write that book? Because I know it started with incredible New York Magazine articles as well, but at what point did you think, like, I've got to run with this, this bigger story? People had suggested a book to me on WeWork, and, and I was skeptical of it. And, and I was skeptical of it essentially up to the moment when Adam Newman resigned in September of 2019. And the brief history of, of the story up till then and my connection to it was the company had been flying high for years. I decided to write a profile of Adam and WeWork in, in early 2019. At that point, the company was still on the way up. And that's what we were interested in. It was only in reporting that we sort of discovered you know, a lot of the, the chaos and weirdness that was ultimately what came out as the company tried to go public and, and tried to go public in this sort of disastrous way. And, but it was only until Adam stepped down and the IPO failed that frankly, I saw an ending to the story. And, and the ending to me was not the end of WeWork. The company still exists. It's still trying to find its way through the pandemic and all of that. But it was the end of, of the Adam Newman era of WeWork. And, and that era of WeWork was also a stand-in for a lot of other stories about the startup boom of the 2010s and the amount of money that was sort of sloshing around the venture capital, funding all kinds of crazy ideas that were losing tons and tons of money and disrupting all kinds of industries with no clear path to sort of making sense as, as actual businesses. And, and WeWork, I think, was the epitome of that. And so... It was at that point that I, I felt like, okay, there is an ending to this book and, and there's something that I can say that, that will matter more than just crazy stories about Adam Newman drinking tequila. It seems like Adam Newman fed off the cult of personality around him. And I'm just thinking that Elizabeth Holmes is going through yeah. the court process now, which also seems bizarrely late. How important has this cult of personality been in the rise of these tech companies? I think it's been fairly significant. And I think there was a, a sort of belief that emerged out of the last dot-com boom in, into the sort of social media boom of, of the 2000s of of these kind of singular entrepreneurs that that were capable of building these companies that were larger and bigger in scope than anything we had seen before. This is the Amazons, the the Facebooks of of the world, and and I think you know there there was this belief in the venture capital world of that you bet on founders, uh, that you bet on the entrepreneur as much as you did the idea or, or the business model. And that was certainly the case with Adam Newman. I mean, it was not something where these investors looked at WeWork's business 
and were totally blind to the realities of it, which was that it was a real estate business. And in a lot of ways, the business itself looked like businesses that had come before. But what Adam promised is, I'm going to figure out a way to break this mold. I'm going to figure out a way to disrupt real estate because I'm going to take chances. We have a good model. We have a good business. People like it. And we're going to find a way to do things differently, whether that's using technology in ways that'll help bring advantages that other real estate companies aren't pursuing or, or through other things. And, and so there was this willingness and this desire to bet on these visionary founders who wanted to do something completely new and different, because if they did, the rewards were potentially exponential as opposed to finding someone who just wants to build a, a nice solid business. So I think the cult of, of the founder is certainly something that played a role, I think, in in both in companies that have, have become huge successes and a lot of the ones that have become these spectacular failures. I'm wondering in terms of that whole venture capital culture, whether that's still happening. I think it is. <laughs> I think in, in some ways the pandemic has introduced this, this whole new world for all of us. And it's introduced a whole sort of raft of companies who are trying to take over that world. I mean, Zoom a year and a half ago was, was a nice little business that was, was successful and now is suddenly one of you know, the fastest growing companies in the world. There are all kinds of companies being built now, built for, for this new way of living. And in my view, in a lot of cases, venture capitalists are going in and funding these companies on the premise that they are going to become gigantic enterprises, not on the premise that they're going to become good, solid businesses. So I think, unfortunately, a, a lot hasn't changed. I feel like it's precious to speak to someone who creates our cultural conversations. I'd love to know about how you digest the media yourself and whether you have limits on that, kind of where you go to get a breadth of news. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you take breaks. Yeah. Breaks are hard to take, I will admit. I, like everyone else or most other people in, in my business at least, are, are, I'm a pretty ravenous consumer of Twitter, which I do find to be a, a place for me to kind of quickly digest what is going on. I, I will admit also to being someone who I know what story I'm working on at any given moment, and that is the world that I try to inhabit as much as possible, and I try to consume as much as I can about that particular topic, as opposed to constantly feeling like I need to be up on everything that is in the news, I think. And in some ways, that may make me a, a bad citizen of the world to not always be up to date, but I, I think I, I find it to make me better at my job to, to be committing to learning as much as I possibly can, given the limited reading hours that I have and the, considering that some of those hours I'd like to spend to just consuming things I want to read, whether it's a, a book or a, a magazine article or, or anything else. Well, that's a good place for me to ask you what you want to read at the moment? I have sitting here Patrick Radden Keefe's latest book, Empire of Pain, about the Sackler family and Oxycontin, which is not exactly light reading, but he's one of my favorite investigative reporters. So that's one. And on a completely different track, I recently moved to Kansas City, Missouri, 
which is my hometown. I have never read the Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge novels, which are, are the sort of thing <laughs> I found that every New Yorker in the literary world knows about Kansas City, and so, but that, that I've actually never read. And so I'm hopefully be picking up those two very different sets of books in well, the near future. your return home is something that a lot of people will mm-hmm. be able to identify with having been through the last few years. I'm wondering how that's feeling. Is it, are you around your parents a lot now? That must uh, be nice. Yeah, I, I, I was. I was, especially last year, I was, I was living a lot with my father and I had a weird pandemic. I mean, I have, I have a job where in, in a lot of ways I can be everywhere. In many ways, being in New York was was extremely beneficial to me in in my career. A lot of the publishing sources that I was able to talk to for this story were just people I I met and came to know in in living in New York for a decade. Being away has has been sort of strange in some ways and and in other ways kind of encouraging to realize both that there there is no place like New York just full stop. But there's a lot of other places. <laughs> there's a lot of other reasons to recommend places. It's been healthy to kind of get out and, and try something new and different. Well, I lived with my father in 2019, so before mm-hmm. the pandemic, back in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it was such an incredible moment to have as an adult. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of factors that that led me to move home, and and I think I think one good realization is that everything's temporary, and and moving back here has had its has had its great benefits, and and that being one of them, and and we'll see. Um, New York will always be there, and 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 I think it, it feels sad to not not be there for this particular moment, but I think if it feels right to be back, I know I can come back. Well, to finish, I always ask everyone with the same question. And it is, what lights you up? I guess this is maybe really going to go back to my obsessiveness and maybe just describing or, or having to describe myself as a workaholic. But it's what, what lights me up is starting on a, on a new and exciting story. It's sort of the moment when anything is possible in terms of what a story could be, the limitations and the pain of writing has not come into play. It's sort of just an, it's kind of open canvas just as a reporter to kind of go out there and, and try to find out what's going on. And, and so I think, you know, that, that excitement, I always have this kind of lull between pieces that I write for the magazine of, of getting something done and feeling excited and energized by it and, and dealing with the aftermath of it. And then kind of a period of like, okay, what now? And, and it's, it's sort of once that, that next story comes that, that gives me another sort of hit of, of excitement. So thankfully I'm at that moment now and, and hopefully it produces something good Ooh, soon. It's exciting. Well, how can we follow along with everything you're doing? I'm assuming on Twitter? I am on Twitter. It's just my name, Reeves Weideman. I'm not often tweeting, but I am there listening. So you can see me there. Most of my writing is on, on New York Magazine and, and the book is, is available in paperback now, wherever, wherever books are sold. Amazing. Reeves, thank you so much. What a fun conversation. I loved it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Angela. Thanks, Reeves. And thank you all for listening. Next week, I have a great friend and former Cosmo colleague of mine on Lit Up. 
It's Annie Daly, and she's written an incredible book called Destination Wellness. I hope you can tune in. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get everything you need to keep your pets happy and healthy at Menards. Feed your canine companion the best with chicken soup for the soul. Their dog food is made with real quality ingredients. It provides well-balanced nutrition for supporting happy, healthy pets. Explore all our pet products in-store and on Menards.com. And check out more of our great deals going on now at Menards. Save